Well, good morning again, and thanks for being with us. It's great to see you, whether you're here in the room, you're watching online, you're listening later. Thanks for taking part of your week uh, to worship with us and to learn with us. Uh, It's just great to be with you. I hope you had a great week. I hope you stayed uh, a little bit cool yesterday. Owen had a flag football game, and at 9 o'clock yesterday morning, it was toasty. So I hope you guys are staying cool, and we're thankful for air conditioning. Our, Our house that we're in now is the first house where I haven't had to put window air conditioning units in. And I praise Jesus for it every day because I just, I hate, that was my least favorite day of the year. So it's good to, good to be with you. Well, obviously with the temperatures coming and or going up, I guess, is the way to say that we are, you are aware and I'm aware that summer is coming. And we've been having this conversation called the problem of Jesus for about seven weeks now. This is the seventh week. And one of the things that I've said over and over and over again, and you'll continue to hear me say is that we exist at GFC to establish people on the foundation of Jesus. That's something that we are committed to and we will continue to do. And one of the things that we said earlier this year, if you came in today and it was your first time, you saw there's a giant banner out in the lobby that says resolved. And the reason for that is we want to be resolving this year, understanding why we believe what we believe and making sure that we are firm in that foundation. And then we turn the tables and we go, but we're going to do a sermon series on all the problems with Jesus that we're establishing this foundation on. And so why do we do that? What is, what is the reason for that conversation? And so today we're going to wrap that up as we move from this conversation into our summer focus. And where I've gone every week and other, uh, when Pastor Tim was here last week, we had this conversation, Pastor Andrew as well. And what we said is this, that the reality of Jesus creates a personal problem. And so if you're going to say that you believe Jesus was who he said he was and that he did the things he says he did and that the gospels are true, that inherently is going to lead you to a personal problem. Because immediately what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to say that I am not good enough. I need Jesus. My my ability to be good, my ability to win my way back to God, my ability to do those things is not good enough. And I actually need the blood of Jesus to cover me. Because I I sin and I make mistakes and those mistakes and those sins have consequences to them and Jesus shows up to fill in the gap for me. And so when we say that, we automatically have to kind of look in the mirror and say, I need him because I am not good enough. And that is one of the most difficult sentences for humans to say. I don't know about you. I have a hard time saying that. I have a hard time saying, I don't know what I'm doing and I need help. I won't even do it in the grocery store. I don't like going to people and going, can you tell me where things are? Like just, you know, I just want to figure it out, right? I feel better. I feel good about myself when I can do that. And when I can't do that, I have a problem. And so that's where the tension begins. And so today there's, there's a question that we want to wrap up this conversation on that I think matters greatly to the whole conversation we've had. By the way, if you've missed the other weeks, you can go to our YouTube channel and watch them. You can go wherever you get your podcasts and you can listen back. But here's the problem that I want to talk about today, and it's a question people ask within Christianity and outside Christianity as well. And that problem is, did Jesus really claim to be God? Did he actually make that claim? Is that something that Jesus believed himself? And one of the conversations you'll have is some people would say that Christians actually put this on him, that he didn't actually make this claim. And I will give you a spoiler alert. The words, I am God, never come out of Jesus's mouth. In that phrase, that way. He never says that. But I'm going to show you today how we get there and what that means and actually how the statements he made were actually much more impactful than actually just saying saying those three words. But people will say this is something Christians put on him. There's, this is something that Jesus never actually said. 
But if we start to go down that path and we start to think about maybe Jesus did say it, let's just go there for a minute. If Jesus really did claim to be God and he thought he was, then only three things can be true of Jesus if he made that claim. He can either be a liar, he can be a lunatic, or he can be Lord. But he can only be one. So let's think about that for a minute, right? If Jesus made this claim, let's just say that we get to the point today where you're saying, yeah, he actually did state that he was God or he at least made people believe that. He could be lying. He could be making that statement knowing full well that it is not true and he was just lying to the people around him. That's possible, okay? He could be a lunatic. Now, what does that mean? Well, if he could, he could be theoretically making this claim and believe it's true while it's not, Right? So if you claim that something is true, if you claim you are something you're not or something like that, right? we would say that there was probably a little bit of a, a mental issue going on right? or there's some instability there. And so we could say, okay, well, maybe he thought he was God, but he clearly wasn't if he wasn't. And so therefore, he's maybe a little bit off his rocker. Or we would say that it was true, that he claimed it to be true, and so therefore he is Lord. But he cannot be more than one of those things at the same time. Because the issue that we come to sometimes is that people will say that I believe Jesus was a good person. I believe he was a good teacher. Maybe he was even a prophet, but I set him aside as God. I will not worship him. I will not claim that to be true. But here's the thing. If Jesus claimed to be God and he was either a liar or a lunatic, he cannot be a moral teacher worth following. If he falls into the either the liar or the lunatic category, just for our alliteration today, right? If he falls into either of those two categories, he would, he would then disqualify himself as a moral teacher. Because if he's lying, well, then he's got a moral problem. So his teachings are based on a lie. Therefore, he is not morally good. If he's not quite there, like if he thinks he's God and he's really not, but he's convinced of it. Well, if we know that to be true, then that would skew some of the other teachings that he had that we would say, okay, well, maybe we should look at them a little bit differently in light of where he would be mentally or what is going on in his life, right? So if those other two things are true, he can't be a moral teacher worth following. He's only worth following and worth living our lives after and gleaning from if he actually claimed to be God and if it was actually true. Now, here's an important distinction I want to make today, and this goes to the conversation of the fact that Jesus never said the phrase, I am God. But here's what Jesus did. Jesus claimed equality with God. Now, think about this for a minute. At Jesus' time, there were many cultures where there were many gods. And so if he had come out and he had just said, I am God, what it could have been misconstrued or, or misunderstood as what he was saying was actually he was one of the gods, right? He could be God and somebody else could be God, or he could be God and there could be plenty of other gods. And so some people may say, okay, well, we'll follow him, but he's not claiming to be the God or the almighty God or who the Jews would have understood as Yahweh. But he claimed equality with him. I want to start today by going to John 14. By the way, fair warning, there's a lot of Bible today, okay? So here's what, I love that there are those of you who are flipping pages right now. That's great. I don't, I'm going to try not to leave you in the dust because we're going to bounce around a little bit. But if it's helpful, again, we have on our Next Steps cards, there's this little QR code on the back. 
If you scan that, it'll take you to our follow-along page. I know I say this every week. I think it's going to be really helpful this week. Um, it will give you all the notes, all the verses, and you can even submit a question or a prayer request. So even if you're a page flipper, which is awesome, if you want to go there just as like a side-by-side, that may be helpful today. So in John 14, verse 9, we're only going to read verse 9 this time. Jesus, It says this, Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Now let's just take that one phrase, right? What does he say? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This is an important distinction. Because Jesus isn't saying, I am God. He doesn't make that statement. But if I was standing before you today, and I said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. You would understand what I was inferring if you really thought I believed what I was saying. Right? You would be understanding that I'm saying, I am God's representation to you. I am as good as him. Now, Jesus makes this claim of equality in a very important reason, because we know when we look at Scripture and we look at how Jesus interacted, that he was also understanding that his role was different than the Father's role. So they're not, he's not saying that I am the Father. He's saying the Father is still the Father, but I am equal with the Father. And then there's the Spirit, and those three are co-equal together as the three persons of God. Now, if we really wanted to dig into that, I could get really confusing really fast. That's one of those things, the Trinity, where you're just going to like, Pastor Tim said it last week. He said, the more you study, the more you feel like you don't know, do that with the Trinity. Okay? It's just going to happen. I've heard a lot of illustrations, eggs, water, all that kind of stuff. They don't, they just don't do it justice. But he says, you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He's claiming to be equal with the Father. And here's the very important part, and we'll see this play out as we go through our conversation today. This claim cost him his life. It's very important to recognize what the people around Jesus understood him to be saying. And what they understood, and we'll see this in a little bit, when they heard him say these things, they wanted to kill him. Because they understood that what he was saying, if it wasn't true, if he was lying, or even if he was a lunatic, that he deserved to be killed because it was blasphemy. And so this claim that he makes was so important that it would cost him his life. All right, I want to go to John chapter 8. This is where we're going to read a big chunk, and we're going to stop along the way and and have a little conversation as we go through this passage. John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31. Here's what it says in John 8, 31. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 33. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will set us free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now let's let's pause there for a minute. Jesus is, is having this conversation with some people that believed in him and some people that didn't. As he's going through that conversation, he recognizes the first problem that I bring up every week, right? We have a personal problem where we have to recognize that we are sinners. And so Jesus says, if you, uh, you need to be set free. They say, we don't need to be set free. He says, yes, you do. Because if you don't have any freedom from sin, if you don't have the relationship with me, if you've not restored your relationship with God, you will continue to sin. 
You will be a slave to that. You will give in to that urge and you, you will just follow what you want to follow as your sinful self comes out. Going on in verse 35. It says, A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Verse 37. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me. There it is. There's, because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I am telling you that I saw what I saw when I was with my father. But you are following the advice of your father. So let's pause here again just so we understand what's happening. One of the things that's massively important in the Jewish faith is their connection back to Abraham. One of the things that's difficult for us, I think, to understand in our culture is once we get past kind of like great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents... Our lineage for most of us, I think, gets fuzzy, right? Unless you've done the work of going through the processes of digging into your lineage and understanding where everyone comes from, I, I have not done that. And so, yeah, I know like my great, great, maybe great grandparents, and then things get fuzzy. This wasn't the case in this culture, right? That's why in some places in scripture, you see literally there are chunks of scripture just dedicated to son of this person, who was 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 son of this person, because they wanted to remember the lineage because they didn't have a way to save it. And so they would say it over and over and over again. They would draw their identity back to Abraham because he was the father of their nation. This was very important to them. And so when Jesus shows up, they say, I, we, we are the children of Abraham. And so Jesus says, listen, you've got to understand, just because you're children of Abraham doesn't mean you can't connect with what I'm telling you. It's very important that you understand what the message is that I am giving to you. And they wrestle with this greatly. Verse 39 says this, Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow this example. Instead, you are trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. He says, you are trying to kill me because I'm trying to tell you the truth. Abraham would never tell you to do that. Verse 41, no, you are imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I am not here on my own, but he sent me. So Jesus is trying to help them understand that even though he wasn't exactly the person that they thought he would be, he has come from the father they are claiming. And in fact, when they claim Abraham as their father, Abraham's in Jesus's boat. He would be excited that Jesus was here to have this conversation. We're going to jump down to verse 52. 52 says this, the people said, now we know you are possessed by a demon. How would you like it if somebody said that to you? Even Abraham and the prophets died, but you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? They just keep coming back to him. He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my father who will glorify me. You say he is our God but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you, but I do know him and obey him. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say 
You have seen Abraham. Verse 58, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. This conversation, as, as he wrestles with this, with his listeners, gives us a very clear picture of who Jesus was claiming to be. Notice again, he claims that equality with the Father. He recognizes there's a difference in role, but that he was equal. And they say, how could you have known Abraham? How could you have had a connection with him? And he says, before Abraham was even born. This is thousands of years ago, right? He says, I existed and I am. Now, when he says that, that's a callback. If you've seen or if you've uh, heard the story of Moses or seen like the Prince of Egypt, I think that movie back from like the early 2000s, this was in there, right? Where the burning bush, there's a bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. And Moses has a conversation with God. And, and the bush, God says through the bush, I am. Immediately when they understood that, when, they heard, when Jesus says this, everyone in that audience knew what Jesus was saying. And their immediate response is to pick up stones and kill him. Why? Because they knew he was claiming to be equal with God. And he was not just claiming to be a God, but that he would be equal to Yahweh. The God they had followed, the God of Abraham, he was claiming equality with him. And the Jews and the people listening wrestled with this so greatly because Jesus looked differently than they thought he would look. We don't have time to flesh all of this out today, but I want to make it clear what the claims of Jesus were. And Jesus claims to be these four things. There are other things he claims, but I think these are important for our conversation today. First of all, he claims to be God in the flesh. Right? We read earlier, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You understand that. God in the flesh. Eternally existing. He says, before Abraham was, I am. That means he's existed forever. He claimed to be sinless. And he claimed to be worthy of worship. It's very important that when we see in Scripture, times when angels show up, many times people are terrified of them. And they automatically fall down before them and they bow and they basically treat them as deity. And the angels always say, get up, stop it, don't bow to us, we are not God. And yet when people do that with Jesus, he allows it every time. We would fast forward a little bit. We would see Thomas. And when he, doubting Thomas, right, he sees Jesus after the crucifixion. He sees the nails in his hands and feet and he falls down before him and he calls him Lord. And so all of these things put together give us a clear perspective on the fact that Jesus did in fact claim to be God. If people will tell you that he didn't claim that or that's not true, you can go to these passages. You can look at what Jesus said. You can understand the way people took it when they heard it. And he clearly claims to be God. So guess what? That leaves us with a question. What do we do with that? What do we do with the idea that there would be somebody who would not only come to earth, but that they would claim to be God? And then we have to figure out what category to put him into. We have to figure out, is he one of these three, right? Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Which one is it? And then I think this is where the rubber meets the road on this conversation. If he really is God, what does that require of me? Because if Jesus' claims are true, it demands a response from us. I had this conversation with us on Easter. We, we can't be neutral on this topic. 
either he falls into the liar or lunatic category, but that's one side of the conversation because that means that Jesus wasn't actually God, that he couldn't actually do it, that he wouldn't actually be the answer to how we reconnect and reestablish our relationship with God the Father. But if it's true, then we have to fall on the other side and say, what does this mean for my life? There's a book that we're using as we have this conversation called The Problem of Jesus, where we got the title. And in that book, there was a quote, the author made a quote by another author, and that author is A.W. Tozer, and he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read it again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now think about that for a minute. Because I think what is true is sometimes we think about God through the lens of what we want to be true and what we understand to be true in the context we live in. So sometimes this can play out where if we know, okay, how do I get ahead in life, right? How do I make sure I move ahead in my career? Well, I'm going to make sure I show up on time and I do good work and I'm attentive and I work well with others and I, I continue to do the right things and that's going to move me in the correct direction, right? And sometimes we think through that lens when we're thinking about God and we go, okay, God lays out these things and I'm going to do all the right things and I'm going to lay this out and this is how I'm going to live. And then God still lets something difficult come into our life. God still lets us have a bad day. God still lets somebody we know pass away. God still lets us end up with this chronic illness. And we look at God and we go, hang on a minute. I did everything that was supposed to move me in the right direction. So then why is this different? We look at God through this lens of, what we want and what we think. And sometimes we even think about God as almost like a genie where he would step into our lives and we say, well, clearly like I should be able to get the good things I want in life. Like God, if I pray for it, right, it should come. And I know many people who would think through, they would think about God through their life circumstances and say, well, because God let this happen, I don't believe he's good enough. Maybe we see him as a puny God, or we see him as a weak God, or we see him as somebody who's actually not that good. Because the God that we want to believe in or we think is true doesn't match our own perspective. Yet what I would call us to understand and think about today is to recognize who Jesus is through the Gospels and not through our own lens. Because we think about, or what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I want to go to John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, many, many of us may have heard this story before. It's the story of Lazarus. And so what happens before this conversation is, is Jesus gets a message that his friend Lazarus is sick. And they want Jesus to come. And Jesus kind of hangs out where he is for a couple of days. And then in John 11, verse, starting verse 32, it says this, When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet. And said, Lord, if you only had been here, my brother would not have died. She thinks if Jesus had just shown up a few days earlier, Lazarus would still be there. Verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. Now, that's an interesting thing. Did you catch that? It says a deep anger anger welled up within him. We don't see Jesus get angry a lot, but this is one of the locations. Okay, why does he get angry? We'll come back to that. Hold on to that question. Verse 35, they told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people 
who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him. But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Verse 38, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across his entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Verse 40, Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? If we would continue on to this passage, right, we would see that Jesus calls Lazarus up. He gets up and he walks out of the tomb after being dead for four days. But let's go back to that question for a minute. Jesus is angry. Why is he angry? One of the reasons our, our minds might go to, because it says he saw the people weeping and wailing and upset and he gets angry. We might go, well, they're upset because they keep saying to him, if you were just here a couple days ago, right? They, they don't have the faith that he can actually raise him from the dead. But then Jesus weeps. Let me stop for a minute. Is that the God that we thought we would get? Sometimes when we think about God, we want him to come in guns blazing, right? He would show up to this funeral and he would go, guys, stop crying. Okay, I got this. Lazarus, come on, let's go, right? Like just like there's nothing wrong. Like everything's fine. Like he would just exude this power and strength and automatically everything is absolutely fine. That's not what he does. He shows up and he cries along with them. He shows weakness. He shows sadness. He shows vulnerability. And, and then why, why would he be angry? Well, he's not angry because they're crying and upset because Jesus then cries. So he's not mad at them for that. But why is he mad? I believe that he is simply mad at what death has done. He's angry that death has this hold. He's angry that death is a reality at all. Because, think about it, go back to Adam and Eve. They had the perfect setup. They had relationship with God, they had everything they need, they, they had no problems, right? They, there was not even any sin, no death, nothing. And we go back to our previous passage, right? Jesus was there for that. He understood it. He was involved in the creation. And so now he steps into a funeral and it just makes him angry because he's so tired of this problem that sin has created that has caused the death of people and the death of animals for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and he just is fed up with it. And so here's what I believe to be true. The reality of death angers Jesus so much that he came to destroy it. Because this isn't going to be it forever. This isn't the way we're going to handle this. This isn't the way this is going to go. In fact, I'm going to fix it. Because I'm tired of this being the way that it is. And in so doing, as Jesus shows up in this context, and he shows up and he cries, rather than coming in guns blazing, like I said, he shows up and he sits with people and he weeps with them. Jesus invited people to think about God differently than they ever saw him before. This was a tension in the conversation we saw him have when they kept bringing up Abraham. This is a tension even in this moment where he's waiting, he's getting ready to raise Lazarus. This is a tension for us as we process who God is and what he does. 
Because what God does all the time is not exactly what we would accept. It's not what we would do. It's not what we would want to be done. And so when we enter that space, we have to go, okay, but I got to trust what God is doing, what Jesus is doing, and why he's doing it. And that's where many of us come to a crossroads and we go, I either have to accept the fact that Jesus is God and actually lean into that and give up my own understanding and my own plans and my own of what's going to go on and just trust him. And that's so difficult for us to do. It's difficult for me to do. That I would think about God this way and be able to turn what I believe over to him so that he can do what needs to be done. I want to go to one more passage before we wrap our conversation for today. It's Philippians chapter 2. And we're just going to read verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 says this in Philippians 2. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. I want to stop for a minute there. Some translations are going to have the word, he didn't have equality with God as something to be grasped. I think even the ESV has that. That word's a little bit difficult, and there's probably a little like a little notation there of what that word actually means. But this is the way to think about it. He was he's saying, you know, Paul's telling us he was God, but he didn't see that equality with God as something to cling to, think about forever. It wasn't something that he should just hold on to and keep him from doing anything else. He had it, it was his, he was equal, but he let it go for a little bit. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Verse 8, when he appears in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And so what we understand Jesus to be doing, even though he was completely equal with God, he said, I'm going to take my godly privileges to live next to my father and exist in this space. I'm going to set that aside for a minute, for about 33 years. And I'm going to go take care of business. I'm going to go rid the world of death as we know it. I'm going to go save the people that need me to save them. And I'm willing to do that because I love them. I believe that this is true. True love means realizing someone matters more to you than you. True love is realizing someone matters more to you than you. I would argue this is what Jesus did when he stepped out of heaven. And he set aside those privileges for a few years. And he said, I, I'm willing to do that. And if you hopefully have experienced this at some point in your life, right? There's, there's probably, if we were to say that there's a list of people that I'm willing to do this for, it's, it's, probably, it's probably short, right? But there's a short list of people that you would say, I will put myself in physical harm to make sure that they are okay. I would rather know that I'm gone from the world or I'm hurt or I'm whatever so that they're not so. Jesus is saying the same thing, that he would love us to the point where he would put someone before his own privilege and even his well-being. And so the question that we have to wrestle with today, and this is what this whole conversation comes down to, is we understand whether Jesus claimed to be God, whether he was who he said he was, whether the gospels are true, is does Jesus matter more to you than you? I heard someone preaching this week, and they said, you can say you believe in Jesus and do nothing about it. 
You can say that up and down. You can state that you love him. You can come to church. You can even pray and do those things. But when it comes down to actually living life in that lane, you won't do it. And that comes down to this question, right? Does Jesus matter more to you than you? Does Jesus matter more to me than me? Do I believe the guy who said he was God, who came down and said he died because he loved me so that I could restore my relationship with God the Father? Does that matter more to me than what I think life should be about? Here's what I know is true too, right? Love is easy when it doesn't cost much. This is what I would say is the difference between having a pet and having a child, okay? I have a dog named Sully. We love Sully. He's a dog. I need to do zero things to make him love me. Zero. I feed him. That's it. Actually, a while ago, I heard this conversation. They said, if you, if you feed a dog, the dog will think you're God because you fed him. If you feed a cat, the cat will think it's God because you fed it, right? That's why I have a dog and not a cat, Okay? But I've realized this with my dog and with my children. I need to do very little to cause my dog to love me. Now, my kids love me no matter what, too. But here's what I know is true of kids. They're going to cost a lot of money to love. They're going to cost a lot of time to love. And even when I'm doing something that I believe is best for them, they still might look back at me and say, I don't like you. Or I, I hate you. Right? Every parent has heard that. And if you haven't heard it yet, it's because your kids can't talk. Okay? It happens. It's difficult. And there are days when it, it is just hard to love someone well. Listen, Jesus isn't just a pet that we get to feed and have on the side and just say, okay, we love you every once in a while. Jesus is the person that we're supposed to chase after and love radically and love other people radically because we love him radically. It's supposed to change who we are because we believe that if we look at scripture and we say, this guy said he was equal with God. He said he was equal with the father and then he died and he rose again and he did all these things. And we believe that we can understand the gospels and that they're true. And that that causes me to move from point A to point B to say, I'm not just going to leave that on the side. I'm actually going to chase that down and do something about it because I believe it's true and I want other people to know it's true. I, I'll tell people about my dog if they show up to my house. I don't talk about it. I'm not going to tell you all the time about him. But I should be having regular conversation about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how that has changed me and how that influences my day, how that changes who I am. Listen, I believe it to my core that Jesus claimed to be God. And I believe he backed it up in every way possible. And I believe that he took the time to set aside what he wanted or what he could have easily called his own comfortable space to say, I'm going to show you that I love you by offering my life for you. That demands a response if I believe it to be true. It demands that we do something with our lives. I believe this, right? Truly loving someone means choosing to sacrifice yourself for them every day. We had a conversation a couple weeks back and I just said, if following Jesus is a choice you make every single day. Some people will wake up one day and they'll go, it's just too hard, I'm not doing it anymore. The circumstances from the previous day just say, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to do it. People do that in their marriages. I wake up one day and 
I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to choose you. This is a choice that we make every day to follow him. Why? Because we believe what he said was true. We believe that he backed it up. We believe that there's evidence. And we believe that it demands a response. And so if you've been following this conversation, or even if this is the first conversation you've jumped into with the problem of Jesus, there's a tension that exists here. This isn't like, oh good, Pastor Corey had this conversation and it's just over and we're good and we'll just move on. Like this is, the following of Jesus is a tension that we live in every single day. And if you're, I'll say this too, if you're not feeling the tension in that, you might be missing something. Like if it's easy and just like cruise control and like no, like you might be missing something. Because this is a tension to chase after and to understand what I should be doing. How do I follow Jesus? What does that look like? When am I sacrificing myself? When am I saying that I'm going to set myself aside to follow him instead? That's a tension that's every day. And if, if you're joining and you say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I would simply say this. It is worth investigating and having a very deep conversation if this is even remotely close to being true, that Jesus was who he said he was, and we can trust the Gospels. If that's even remotely true, it deserves the time to really understand whether we can believe it or not. And for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, I just talked about it, right? The tension. I have a challenge I want to give you this week. This is it. This is a question. What is one small sacrifice you can make to invest in your relationship with Jesus this week? Now, here's the caveat to the challenge, okay? There's going to be something that maybe pops into your mind that you go, I've been meaning to do that. I should do that every week. I want to do that. Here's what I'm saying. If you want to do that, that's great. But here's my challenge to you. I want you to pick something a little more drastic, a little more different, a little more not just every week, but like setting something up where you're going to go and do something. So here's an example, right? It might mean that you just need to drive somewhere or hike somewhere or take a boat somewhere. I don't know how you get, where you're going, right? But just go and just sit for a half hour. Just sit in quiet and just listen. Don't look at your phone. Don't, don't bring a tablet or something like that, right? Don't bring a distraction. Just sit, just listen, just pray. And say, I'm going to set aside a half hour just to invest in my relationship to Jesus. Like, just what, what I want to get done. And I guarantee you, if you plan to do this, there's going to be things that pop into your to-do list or your calendar that are going to go, oh, I really need to get that done. Right? That's the moment where we say, I'm going to make this small sacrifice to invest in my relationship with Jesus. Think about that. Pray about that. What does that mean? It could just mean a walk in your backyard. But what is something that you're going to do out of the ordinary that you don't normally do to just say, I'm going to set aside my time so that I can just invest in my relationship with Jesus. Jesus set aside a small time in his life, right? He's around for eternity. So 33 years is pretty short. Set aside and he said, I'm going to put you, I'm going to take care of all this. So take a little bit of time and just set it aside and put him first. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we are grateful that it is so clear what you claimed to be when you came. That we don't have to just look at scripture and say, we're not sure what Jesus thought. We're not sure what he was saying. We're not sure. We're thankful that it is clear what you came to do and who you claim to be. 
And I pray that that reality of what you have done for us would sink deep into our hearts and cause us to live in the tension of what that means to follow you every day. We pray that we would be established, we would establish our lives on you, that we would be resolved in what we believe, and we would step into that tension, choose you, and the tension that it causes to follow you every single day, even though it's not easy. I pray that if anybody's listening to this, whether they're here in the room, they're watching online, wherever they are, and they haven't made that decision, I ask that they would just lean in and really define what they believe about you and really ask the question of if you really claim to be God and if you backed it up by the miracles you did and if you backed it up by dying on the cross and rising again and you say that that was for them that they would just know for sure what they believe about that God I pray that you would lead us as a church family and that we would love people radically because you radically loved us. In Jesus' name.